Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Everybody good this morning? Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Um, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor here. Really good to have you all in the house. And um, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to continue a series that we're doing in the book of Hosea. I uh, started it last week. Last week was very much introduction. Uh, definitely not a typical message that I would preach last week. We did kind of like borderline Bible school for a few minutes last week. And so if you weren't here, you might want to catch up. It'll give you a little context for what we're going to talk about for the next couple weeks. This series will be three weeks long in total. So I started last week. We're going to do this week and then uh, we're going to finish it up next week. And today I want to talk to you out of chapters two and three in particular. And I just want to title this message called God Will Be Faithful. Uh, That's the basic message of Hosea, and I want to pick that up really strong here for a couple chapters. I will also tell you this morning, uh, we're going to read maybe a little more scripture than we normally do, so just uh, hang with me if that's okay. We're going to read a lot of scripture. Normally, I just try to find one passage, mine in. Uh, We're going to look at several verses this morning because it's kind of hard to pull it out in just one little spot. There's a longer narrative to this thing. Also, if you are taking notes, I've got a tiny little outline here for you this morning, and it looks like this. If you want to break it down, uh, the, the context of what I'm going to talk about this morning can be put into four pieces. I want to talk about tremble or trembling, then I want to talk about sin, then I want to talk about judgment, and then I want to talk about redemption. If you're looking at that and going, that sounds heavy, uh, you'd be right. You would be right, but we're going to end on a high note, so just... Hang with me if that's okay. Uh, The first thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about the word tremble or trembling. Um, I want to talk to you just for a moment about that. And I really, I just want to ask a question, and it's it's fine if you want to interact here just for a second. Uh, Why do people tremble? Scared? Like, so if we take the word tremble, and if we were to ask, why do people tremble? How many people here would agree that for the most part, People tremble because of fear. Is that right? People mostly tremble because of fear or maybe anxiety or if you wanted to throw low-grade nervousness into that category. It kind of is all there, right? Is there any category outside of fear, anxiety, and nervousness that people might tremble for? (laughs) Old age. Old age. Thank you, Joseph. Yeah, all, right? Okay, there we go. There's sort of the emotional range to trembling. Awe, overcome, and for the most part, fear, right, or anxiety. We just want to hold that right now, okay? So through the rest of this message, I want to come back to this at the end, but for the beginning, I just want us to hold this idea. Why do people tremble? For what reasons uh, might somebody actually respond physically that way. And uh, we're going to come back to that. For the most part, that's sort of the emotional range. All maybe on the more positive side and then fear or 
anxiety. Now, before I pick up the passage or the rest of the outline, I want to I quickly catch us up on where we're at in the story, in case you weren't here. Uh, here's essentially what has happened in chapter 1 and what we'll see in chapter 2 and 3. Uh, God comes to this guy named Hosea, who was apparently a prophet uh, in Old Testament Israel. And one of the things that we've sort of picked up from scholars who have picked this up from just the way in which Hosea's language is so finely crafted, uh, we've picked up this, this idea that Hosea was probably not a poor guy and he was absolutely well-educated because his writing style is like really good. It's not the writing style of the uneducated. And in that moment, if you're as educated as his writing style would, uh, would lead us to believe, he was probably fairly well off to be able to have that kind of life. And so God speaks to this guy who is a prophet, probably wasn't a poor guy, probably fairly educated, and he tells him to do the sort of thing that an educated, fairly well-off guy would never, ever do, which is go marry a prostitute, right? That's what God tells him. Uh, on the surface, anyone who thinks that God is telling them that, uh, that's a pretty strange thing, but especially when you realize this is not the sort of thing that people who are maybe in Hosea's social status or social category would ever do, right? And so right off the bat, uh, we've got a weird story on our hands. And not only does God say to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute, but he says, I want you to have kids with her, okay? And I want you to name them some things. And so the firstborn son was named Jezreel, which was also a city in Israel. And it essentially means God plants or God establishes or God gives roots to it, okay? The second born, the second born uh, was a daughter uh, and her name meant uh, not pitied or not loved or I will not show mercy, okay? Imagine this, right? So you get your first kid and you name him, God plants. You get your next kid and uh, you name her, uh, I will not show mercy, Right? And so every day for the rest of her life, uh, when she announces her name to anyone, uh, she's essentially saying, not, not loved, not pitied, not merciful, right? That's her name for every day. And then Hosea has a thirdborn, and the thirdborn is also a son. And that, that son's name is also really, really strange. It's not my people. So there's something going on here, Right? Go marry a prostitute, have kids with her, name them not planted, not loved, and not my people. Name them that. And this is a prophetic message. And it's not just a prophetic message that people speak, but it's one that Hosea principally lived out. Now, Hosea had things to say, and we're going to read some of the things that he had to say, but he was embodying the message, which I spent a few minutes last week talking about how this is the most Christian thing ever. Uh, in Christianity, or in the faith that we've taken up, it's never just about words. It's always about words that eventually become embodied, right? So, so things have to be lived out. Uh, Christianity is not a faith of ideation. It's not a faith of even communication. It's actually a faith that takes ideation to its logical conclusions, which has to always be embodiment. That's why it's such a big deal that Jesus became flesh. It's not that God was the word uh, that's... Uh, that can be communicated from minds and mouths, but God became the word in flesh, in person, uh, among us. That's a really big deal. And we see this uh, happening long before Jesus, uh, even in the time of Hosea, God was saying, I want you to give Israel a word, but you have to live it out. 
Uh, and by the way, for everybody who wants to speak words, the most powerful words you'll ever speak are the ones you live out, right? Uh, God is not an idiot. And so Hosea lives out this word, and the word is basically this. Israel, you've been an adulteress. Israel, you've been unfaithful. Uh, Israel, Israel meaning the whole people, right? You've been unfaithful. Uh, you've been an adulteress. Uh, and God says many times through Hosea, he says to the people of Israel, he says, you've forgotten about me and you've gone after other gods. That's basically the message for the people of Israel. She's acted like a prostitute and she's served other gods. The other thing I want us to see right up front is that there's this very important connection between marriage and Israel's devotion to God. I don't know if you've noticed that sort of like in the metaphor that God is using through Hosea. Uh, he says, go marry a prostitute. Uh, she'll be unfaithful to you. And by the way, this is my message to Israel because you've been unfaithful to me. And so God uses marriage to be the prophetic container for the word that he's speaking to his people. And you might be thinking, well, that's weird. Why would he do that? Uh, he's doing that because both of those things, both, both God's relationship to Israel and a husband's relationship to his wife or a wife's relationship to her husband, uh, the connection there is that they're covenant relationships. And I just want to talk to you really quickly about covenant relationships. Why don't you say covenant? Covenant. Uh, by the way, that's, it's no small thing. A covenant is no small thing. Uh, a covenant is a contract of the heart. Okay? That's the best way I can say it to you. It, it carries a contractual uh, notion to it, but it's not just pen and paper and lawyers. It's the contract of the heart. It's the contract of the heart. Uh, there's a solemnness to it. One of the first covenants that we see in the Old Testament is the one that God makes between he and Abraham. And, and God has Abraham cut this, this, this cow up and walk in between it. And he says, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me. Uh, let's keep our covenant. And basically the idea is, hey, uh, God is saying to Abraham, if I don't keep the promises I'm making to you, let it be unto me as, as it has been unto this cow, cut to pieces, right? And if you don't keep your covenant with me, let it be unto you as it is to this cow. Uh, there's this sense in which, like, let's make this serious, right? That's why in the Old Testament you oftentimes hear people talk about cutting a covenant. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from uh, Genesis 15 when God makes this covenant, this heart contract, this deadly serious with Abraham and to all of his people. And so the connection between what God is saying to Israel through Hosea by marriage and the relationship they have is that they're covenant relationships. They're contracts of the heart. Uh, the other thing about a covenant is there's, there's a notation of intimacy. Intimacy. And by the way, I want to I just say this about intimacy. Uh, intimacy is always about two things. Intimacy is always about two things. It's about exchange, exchange and exclusivity. Think about any of the intimate relationships that you have. If you're actually in an intimate relationship with someone, uh, there's exchange. There's an exchange of heart, right? You, you share things with them, uh, and they share things with you. But just sharing with people doesn't make something intimate. There has to be the note of exclusivity. So an intimate relationship is one where I exchange something with you, and you exchange something with me, but the thing we exchange is something we do not exchange with anyone else. Does that make sense? This is why marriages, if they're going to be actually intimate, they have to be places where 
husbands and wives are actually exchanging things with one another and no one else, right? No one else. Uh, I'll just be honest, like in my time as pastor here doing the work that pastors do, one of the things I've noticed is how often Christian marriages are actually not intimate because, because there's either no exchange or, or, there's, or there's, no, there's no exclusivity. Uh, lots and lots of Christian marriages, even at this church, have exchange, but then all of a sudden there's, there's no sense of exclusivity. Uh, maybe they're uh, exchanging uh, things, but they're also exchanging it with everyone else, you know? Like uh, the, the secrets of our own hearts. Or, and I'm, not, I'm talking way beyond physical intimacy here, right? And we've also had marriages that ended at this church because, because there was exchange, but there was, no, there was no exclusivity, and the exchange happened outside of the bounds of marriage, and I'm talking about physical things here, and it like ruined it, you know? It's like, what happened? Well, you gave something away you can't give away to everybody, right? Or then the opposite also happens. Uh, maybe, maybe there's just no exchange anymore, right? Uh, like there's just, there's nothing, there's nothing between it. We just like share a house together or something, right? So if you want to have an intimate marriage, if you want to have intimate friendships, if we want to build an intimate community, and then if we want to know God intimately, the two things that always have to be present are exchange and exclusivity, those are like essential ingredients, and God is putting his finger on that through the prophet Hosea. God says that Israel has treated him like an unfaithful wife. She's run off to other gods, and she's started to love outside of the covenant. And you might be thinking, well, that's great. That sounds like history. What does that have to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. How many in this room know that Competing gods and idols are not just an Old Testament phenomenon. You know, how many of us are aware that it's easy to put our trust in other places? And, and not just our trust, but to put our love, to put our heart in other places. It's really easy to do. There's so many suitors who compete for our devotion and affection. And that brings us to chapter 2. And I just want to read the beginning of chapter 2, maybe the first seven verses or so. Chapter 2. This is Hosea, and he's speaking to Israel. He says, this is the stuff that God has to say. He says, now bring charges against Israel, your mother, which is really interesting, isn't it? God says, speak to Israel. She's your mother, but she's my wife, right? And God says this, uh, she's no longer my wife, and I'm no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breast. Otherwise, I'll strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born, and I'll leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness, and I will not love her children, for they were conceived in prostitution. We can go to the next slide. Their mother is a shameless prostitute, and they became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. Let's do one more. For this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she runs after other lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them but not find them. She will think, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. Maybe one more. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything she has, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. 
Uh, how many of you understand, this is, this is hard. <laughs> it's like God is, not, God, is, God is not mincing words, right? He's calling a spade, spade. These are hard words. And since we're on to hard words, I just want to talk about sin for a moment. I want to talk about sin and judgment. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but sin is not a fashionable word. Uh, it's, it's actually not even a fashionable word in church right now. And I, I want to tell you something uh, that is happening like uh, in wider culture. Uh, and by wider culture, I just mean like wider church culture. There's even a fairly good debate happening right now in the church as to whether or not sin is even a real thing. Maybe you didn't know that. I just want you to know. That is something that people are talking about. Is sin even a thing? Uh, is sin a real thing that we have to really care that much about? It's not a fashion word. I get it. Um, it's been used to beat people up. Can we just can we acknowledge that? Like these concepts have been used to beat people up. It's also been used to manipulate people. Can we acknowledge that? Yeah, how many of you have ever been manipulated by some of this? It's like, yeah, put your hand up. It's all good. Uh, but more than that, um, uh, and I don't know about you, uh, but I don't like it when my faults get brought into the open. Right? And I, I think that's where some of this some of this debate is even coming from. Like, if I'm being honest, I don't like when my faults get brought into the open. You probably don't either. And so, so sometimes what we do is we make this invisible contract with one another where we go, well, I don't like my faults being brought up. You don't like your faults being brought up. So let's don't, let's don't just bring them up. And in fact, let's just like redefine the concepts that could even be brought up. Could we do that? It's like, maybe, okay. Here's what I like doing. I prefer to do what I want and then feel justified and good about it. That's what I like. I like, I like to do what I want and then feel justified. And have you ever noticed that when you do what you want, when you really do what you want, that if you want to, you can, you can figure out a way to feel justified by it? You know, let's just admit that, right? Yeah. But like I said, right now there is something of a debate happening, even in the church, and it centers on if there is really even a thing called sin. Uh, one, one of the ideas that's floating around right now is that there's really not anything, uh, anything like sin. It's just a social construct, meaning, meaning it's just something we've all agreed upon uh, by our own upbringing or by the norms that our society that we live in has given to us. It's just something we've sort of figured and we've, uh, we've defined as sin. It's not really like if you go and live in a different culture, they don't really care about X. We care about X. We call it sin, but it's not. It's just something we made up, maybe over the course of history or because of social impulses. It's just social constructs. Or uh, one of the ideas that's also being bandered around is the idea that it's just a, a prohibition based upon a primitive person's need to survive. You know, it's not really sin. That's just like old stuff that primitive people needed. These are rules that primitive people needed to survive. You know, it's not really like we're past that. You know, we can go to Kroger and get all the food we need. Water comes out of the faucet. Um, the cars just work. We don't, you know, we don't need that stuff. It's, it's just rules uh, that would keep most, most people alive and happy. And so, I don't know, maybe it's not even real. But I just want to be uh, clear for one moment. Uh, I still believe in sin. I still believe in sin. Uh, here's why. 
because I sit with it all the time, you know? And then we also just need a word for what is the, what do we call things when people mess one another over, you know? Like we need a word for what happens when I mess someone over, when someone messes me over, or when things don't grow. We need a word for that. I still believe in sin. I still believe in my own, and I still believe in other people's. The other thing I want to say, uh, finally, uh, just as one little barb for anybody who's in the room listening and maybe listening on the podcast, um, if, if there's no sin, if there's no sin, one of the things that I've noticed about people who are maybe engaging in this conversation is it's a particularly, uh, com- it's a conversation that's located in uh, white wealthy culture. You'll never hear, you'll never hear that coming from people who are oppressed. You won't hear the conversation, there's probably no sin with Christians in Syria right now, right? Uh, it's, it's absolutely clear, you know, and even this morning, there's probably people who are wondering if they're going to make it till the end of the night because someone else may be coming to sin against them in the most profound way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I still believe in sin. Uh, here's what I believe. I believe in my own selfishness over and above other people's well-being. I think that's what sin is. It's my selfishness over and above someone else's well-being. I still believe that society is locked in this kind of struggle. I believe that people are oftentimes looking to do what they want over against what might be good for you or what might be good for us. I still believe that we live for ourselves without a mind toward God or others. By the way, I think that's a decent way of understanding sin. Living solely for someone, for living solely for oneself, for my well-being, for my pleasure, for my benefit, for my advancement, without thinking of others, or possibly even at the expense of others. I think that's what sin does. And so when we read in chapter 2, we see that God spells out sin, especially, especially in verse 13. Can we put that up? Chapter 2, verse 13. I don't know if I gave it. Yeah, I did. God says through Hosea to Israel, he says, I'm going to punish Israel for all those times when she burnt incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for other lovers, but she forgot all about me, says the Lord. Yeah. Israel burnt incense to Baal. This is just another way of saying she worshiped another God. She got dressed up metaphorically and she went out for other lovers and she forgot about God. You might be asking, what's the connection between what I've been talking about and forgetting God? Well, it's this. You have to know the whole story of Israel. Uh, God delivers Israel from Egypt. In Exodus 3, uh, God says, I'm the God who hears and I remember, right? He says, I'm going to save my people from slavery. And not only does he say that he's going to do it, but he actually does it. Uh, He saves them from the sins of Pharaoh who wanted to extract financial blessing on the backs of Hebrews. And he does it in the most miraculous way. Uh, there are, there are uh, radical, miraculous moments of God's deliverance. And Israel walks through on dry ground. And they come out into the desert where God provides for them with a cloud by day and a fire by night and uh, manna in the morning. And when they get tired of manna and complain and they want quail, what does God give them? Quail until they puke. You know, God just, 
he just constantly takes care of his people. He takes care of his people. And then just a short while later, like a generation, a few generations later, uh, the very people who were so radically delivered by God completely forget. And all of a sudden, they're worshiping Canaanite gods. This is what God means when he says, you've forgotten me. And when he says, you've forgotten me, what he means is, the very people who were delivered by God and were provided for God, provided for by God and who were made safe by God start looking for provision, safety, and meaning from other gods. Israel was worshiping other gods. And they would probably have been like Canaanite gods. And Canaanite gods were basically this, fertility gods. Like, bless our crops and let us have kids, right? And, and what is at the bottom of bless our crops and let us have kids? What's at the bottom? Trans, this is the translation of that. That translation is, uh, give us provision, safety, and a future. Right? How many of you know that uh, all of our idol worship, uh, even today as modern people, all of our idol worship is about, give me provision, safety, and a future. Yeah. Uh, wherever, you find, wherever you find your security for provision, safety, and a future, that's where your worship is. That's what we see over and over. Wherever I get security, that's where I worship. And God judges her for it. And I, I just want to tell you, we'll go real quick here. I want to talk about judgment for a second. Sin is real. Uh, and if sin's real, then judgment's real. And God judges her for it. And if you're in your Bible, you can see this in verse 6, in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, in verse 10. God goes on this like, he goes on this like, like ladder of ways that he's going to judge Israel. Uh, he says, I'm going to fence her in. She can't go anywhere. I'm going to fence her in. Uh, he goes, I'm going to take away her ripened grain in verse 9. Uh, Israel is worshiping Canaanite gods, uh, probably fertility gods, uh, hoping that the crops will come in. And God says, you know what? The very crops that you are hoping are going to come in, I'm going to take them away. And God says, uh, again in verse 9, I'm going, to, I'm going to take away. I'm going to take away the olive oil. Uh, I'm going to take away the grain. I'm going to take away all the stuff that you were hoping for. I'm going to take it away. Uh, in verse 10, he says, I'm going to strip Israel naked, and she'll be as naked as she was on the day that she was born. How many of you understand that's, that's judgment language? Judgment language. Uh, it could be pretty tough. Pretty tough. Sounds tough, and it is. But I, I just want to talk to you really quickly about a way of understanding the judgments of God. Uh, number one, the judgments of God are always good. I, I know this is really strange, and it's counterintuitive, but if you were to ever pray this crazy prayer, it wouldn't be the worst prayer that you could pray. If you were to pray, God, would you, would you give me your judgments? You know, would you, would you? It wouldn't be the worst prayer, because God's judgments always, always have contained inside of them uh, the hope of restoration. Uh, God is never retributive. God is never out for punishment. He's out to rebuild and to heal, always. So to pray for God's judgments, number one, uh, would actually be kind of a smart thing to do, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a dumb thing. Uh, the second thing, uh, this is how God's judgments, for the most part, work. For the most part, uh, the judgments of God are God letting us have what we think we want. And you might, be, you might read Hosea chapter 2 when God is saying, I'm going to fence you in, I'm going to strip you naked, and I'm going to take away, you might read those and go, well, how, how is that God giving us what we think we want? Uh, it, well, it works like this. 
It works like this. Think about the story I've been telling you. God is basically saying, in the case of Israel and her love of other gods, he's saying, listen, Israel, if you want to serve Baal, that's great. I'll let him take care of you. Right? I will release you to the care of Baal. And so when God says, I'm going to take away the grain, I'll take away the olive oil, and I'll take away, uh, I'll take away your clothing, I'll strip you naked, meaning just I'll, I'll let you be humiliated. That's basically God saying, if you want to worship Baal, I will let Baal take care of you, if that's what you want. So how do the, how do the judgments of God come into our life? It's, it's basically this. It's that God will take people seriously, which on the one hand makes me feel much better because it feels like it's not so much that God is out to get me, right? So that's good. But how many of you understand that what I just told you is actually a heck of a lot more scary? It's like, geez, are you kidding me? Yes, and this is the truth. God takes people seriously. God will, God will eventually let you have the things that you think you want, you know? That's the problem. That's the problem. Uh, how many of us in the room would like to eventually become an angry and a tribal person? How many of you would like to be super angry and super tribal? And uh, as you live your life, how many of you would, are hoping to become more us versus them? You know? Anybody? Uh, if you want to become angry, tribal, and increasingly us versus them, let me tell you how you do it. You bow down to the God of Fox News and CNN. Go worship at the little box altar of Fox News and CNN, and here's what will happen to you. God will eventually take you seriously, and he'll let you have the things you think you want, and you'll become a really angry and tribal person who hates people God loves. That's how you do it. And the judgments of God will come into our life. You know? We'll be unable to hear the very people that we need to hear. We'll be able, unable to love the very people that God wants us to love. Not only that, we'll be unable to hear or love the very people that God hears and loves. And in, do, in, and in so doing, we'll be cutting ourselves off from God. All right? How many of us would like to become scared and stingy? How many of us are hoping that when we get to be 80, we're like, we're like Scrooge McDuck misers, and we're just, we're like hanging on to, you know, not going to let it go, you know? How many of us are hoping for that? Here's how you do it. Uh, give your heart to money and acquisition. The spirit of, of mammon is what Jesus says. There's like a spirit behind the thing, you know? Begin to worship money and acquisition. Like, give in to it. Like, like listen, guys. Idols and gods, it's not just Old Testament stuff. We just have new names for them. Yeah. In America, it's called winning. You know? You want to be, you want to be stingy and scared? Become a winner. Like, bow down to the American success god. Just every day, do everything you have to do to bow down to, to the American success god. And in a few years, God will take you seriously, and he will let the American success god take care of you, and you'll become someone with a shriveled, stingy heart who will never let go. Judgment. How many of us would like to live with crushing anxiety and crippled by comparison? Anybody hoping to do that? God, would you please let me be crushed by anxiety, and I'd love to be crippled by comparison. No, nobody wants that. But here's how it happens. It happens when I give my heart to the American success paradigm. You know, 
when, when, when social media becomes the construct by which I judge my own life, all of a sudden, what have I done? Uh, you do it a little while, you're fine. You're fine. You can actually take a little bit. How many of you know you can take a little bit of arsenic? You know? You know, you can take a part per million, maybe two parts per million. But if it gets strong enough, the next thing you know, it changes your own chemistry and you begin to die. Yeah, just bow down to Instagram. Put a filter on your face. You know, do it a hundred times. Take a million selfies and put a filter on your face. And after a while, you'll become a small person who's dying of anxiety because you've compared yourself to people who were more beautiful, more successful, or had more things. And the next thing you know, your heart becomes shriveled and small. Judgment. It's like Hosea chapter 2 is like, it's here, y'all. It's here. False gods are everywhere. Okay. I got to get moving. I got to get moving. I'm sorry. Holy moly, I got to get moving. I've been doing better than this. Chapter 3. Can we just put chapter 3 up? Chapter 3. We got we to gotta go to redemption. Yeah. I've been smashing stuff. We got to go to redemption. Hey, look at this. Then the Lord said to me, after God has said all these hard things, right? After he said all these hard things in chapter 2, the Lord says to Hosea, he says, Go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover, this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and loved to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Stop. What does that remind you of? Is there an echo in there for anyone? 15 pieces of silver, five, what do you turn barley into? Bread and a measure of wine, silver, bread, and wine. Whose story has silver, bread, and wine in it? How, how, much, how much was Jesus sold for? 30 pieces of silver. Like way before Jesus, God is sowing this redemption story, right? He's sowing, there's an echo, right? Way before. Uh, Jesus, Jesus gets sold for twice. He gets bought for twice what Gomer was bought for, right? Why? Because it's the sins of the world. Not just the sins of Israel, it's the sins of the world. You know, it's the Bible way of saying like all of it, right? And he said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution during this time. You won't have sexual relationships with anyone, not even with me. It's like, we're going to take a break. Uh, this shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince, without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will turn and devote themselves to the Lord their God and David's descendant. Who's that? Jesus. Hello. David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will what? Tremble. Tremble. Why? In all the Lord and his goodness. Yeah. Uh, where's this thing headed? I'll tell you where the thing is headed. If you'll just stay with the Lord. Uh, it is headed towards he will come and he will purchase everyone back. And by the way, that's the problem with sin. Uh, the problem with sin is not just that uh, it's bad or that it, uh, it upsets God. The problem with sin is it puts you in debt. And this is also not a popular idea anymore. But it's actually true. Think about, think about the things that you do where you become selfish at the exclusion or even at the expense of other people, right? Uh, it always incurs a debt. Uh, you become indebted to whatever it is. 
Uh, if you're lying so that you can get ahead, how many of you know you can't tell one lie? You got to tell how many? A thousand. You know, it's like you got to tell, a f- then all of a sudden you're a liar. You know, you, you told one lie and now all of a sudden you become a liar and everything is a lie. And then how many of you know that the lying is running you around now? Uh, you know, how many of you have ever gotten into big credit card debt and all of a sudden uh, the, the tail was wagging the dog, right? It's like, I didn't mean to do that. Well, yeah, hello. That's right. That's the problem with sin. That's why, that's why Hosea goes and buys his wife back because sin isn't just something bad. It isn't just something that God's kind of upset with. It isn't something we shouldn't do. The problem with sin is, is it throws you into debt and there's compounding interest, you know? And God is the sort of God who will let you have that if you want, but he's also the, the sort of God who will come back to you and say, you know what? I don't think you really want that and I'll buy you out even though I don't have to. Even though I don't have to, I will give up silver. I'll give up that which you thought was precious for you. I'll give up uh, bread and wine. Read for that communion, you know, like the table. I'll make a table for you. We read about that a few weeks ago in Psalm 23. These are the sort of things that God does. And he's going to do it to such an extent that in the last days, uh, they, meaning Israel, uh, translation, the whole world is going to tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. Like, redemption is a real thing, and it's going to happen at such a level that the whole world is going to tremble, not for, f- for fear and not for anxiety, but because God is good. This is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. God pays the price. God pays the price. I want to say one more thing about that, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, when Hosea pays the price, and when Jesus pays the price, uh, part of what we see here is that love is not an idea. Love is always an action, and it costs something, right? Real love is not just an idea. It's not just the words we say. It is the things we do. It is the price we pay. That's when you know you've really found something. That's when you know you've really loved something. That's when you know you've really been loved. And It's when someone is paying a price for you. And the price for Israel was silver and barley and wine, echoes of Jesus. This is a gospel story. What's the gospel? Here it is. Even though I'm unfaithful, even though we are unfaithful, uh, even though we are weak and given to selfishness, and even though we're prone to trade today for tomorrow, that's another way of understanding sin, trading today for tomorrow, uh, there is one who is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. There's one that's true. There's one that's right. He'll pay the price. Uh, The end is not sin. I want to tell you that this morning. The good news and the gospel this morning is the end is not sin. The end is not judgment. The end is trembling. The end is trembling. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. The end is trembling, and it's trembling not because of fear. Instead, it's trembling from his goodness. Somebody say, bless the Lord. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Listen, uh, in the very place that you've been unfaithful, in the very place you've been ultimately selfish, in the very places that you've left the Lord, uh, in the very places where you've messed it up, either on purpose or on accident, or on accident that became on purpose, or on purpose and it became an accident and it was like really, really on purpose, like all of those places, uh, the kindness of the Lord will hunt you down. He will hunt you down. Uh, If you will just give up the need if you will give up the need to have it your way, you know, just get, like, like, goodness gracious, let's quit bowing down to Fox News and CNN. Let's quit bowing down to the American success gods. Let's quit bowing down to, 
to the social media gods that are trying to make us uh, feel terrible about the otherwise good, blessed life that God has given us. Let's quit bowing down to all of these things that make us us versus them, you know? And let's receive, let's receive uh, the embrace of God. Amen? Oh, man, I've been too long. Somebody stand up. <sighs> Before I go to preaching again. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, please come up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.